fatigue syndrome or ME is a lack of energy and it's debilitating. It's like putting your phone on in, in at night, you know, charge it up because it's completely dead. And in the morning you wake up, it's on 5%. It's particularly with the elite players. They can be very mistrusting to begin with. That's why I would go in once a week, at least to Man City to begin with and have lunch with the players and watch them train. So they became familiar with me. I also found after I got over that initial, oh, my days, look at who I'm having lunch with and who I'm talking to. They still go to the toilet. You know, they still have their issues. One or two of them still have their confidence issues as well. Not just a change in my job, but a change in my identity from high-flying graduate management trainee with all the kudos that goes with it to what was then called being on invalidity benefit. You know, I was labelled an invalid in my mid-twenties. On today's Engaging Marketeer podcast, I am speaking with Paul McGee. Paul is the author of a number of successful business books, including Sumo, Shut Up and Move On. He is also a trainer, coach and keynote speaker. I'll be speaking with Paul about what he does, who he does it for and how he helps people with change, leadership and improving in their business and their personal lives. One question I like to ask people who help others is what's their motivation to do in it? What was it that made you first realize that you wanted to help other people get better at what it is they do? Darren, I'd love to give you a Mother Teresa answer to that question. You know, I just had a heart to help people. But the reality was I'd had a high-flying job uh, as a graduate management trainee for a big multinational Unilever. And within 12 months of working with them, I'd become ill and lost my job through ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, yuppie flu is the daily mail like to call it, or it's sometimes known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And I was ill for three years. And when I got to the point where I felt well enough to work, um, I wasn't fully recovered, though. That was the reality because I kept on having relapses. And so no one would hire me because I couldn't pass a medical. So on one level, it was necessity to I went self-employed and and it was like, well, I need to look at what's my skill set. What, what am I interested in? What am I relatively good at? And, and will that meet a need or help people? And I was very interested in personal development. I did like people. I'd um, had a passion for drama at school. So not great with my hands, a lot better with my mouth. Yeah. Um, not excellent at, at, at sort of like mathematical, uh, IT type stuff. So it's a case of, okay, what strengths and skills do I have? What interest have I got? And what's the need out there? And so I had to think about, you know, and I had to think about getting some money in. So love to give you the, I just had a heart to help people <laughs> become better versions of themselves. And I don't mean to be patronising or disrespectful of people who have that as a heart. But on one level, I didn't, mate. I do now, um, but I didn't to start with. It was, how do I survive? Well, that, 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 that's brutal honesty. I, I love that, yeah, because most people will say, oh, this happened and somebody got ill and I wanted to do this. But, yeah, it's, it's just it, it's what you're good at. It's what you were good at. Yeah. And when you're actually performing on a – I use the word performing because it, it it sort of is when you're giving a it's, talk. When you're, when you're it, it sort of is. Where does the energy come from? That's really interesting because it is quite ironic that chronic fatigue syndrome or ME is what, what sort of – 
basically the illness is, is a lack of energy. And it's debilitating. It's like putting your phone on in, in at night because it's completely, you know, charge it up because it's completely dead. And in the morning you wake up, it's on 5%. That's how my illness was. And now I'm, I'm running my business and, and I'm known as people often go, wow, you had so much energy. And I do think, Darren, I do, maybe that's just who I am and it's my style, but I believe everything I'm talking about. If, if you were to say to me, Paul, we think you're a great speaker and we'd like to give you a subject and a set of slides and we want you to deliver them next week um, and, and we'll basically kill you if you don't, <laughs> then I might have to accept your invitation. But will I be able to have the same energy, passion and commitment talking about a subject that maybe I might not just necessarily not know a lot about, but also I don't really believe in and I don't have any experience of. So I my my sumo philosophy we might talk about sumo shortly and what it's what it stands for. But it's ultimately, you know, on one level, it's just simply life advice that works. But at another level, it's how do I get the best out of myself? How do I get the best out of my relationships with others and how do I get the best out of life? And, and I come at that from a position of a lot of struggle, a lot of setbacks and my own inadequacies and failings. And yet along the way, I've, I've discovered some ideas. I've learned from other people that have had a profound impact on my life. And it would be rather selfish to not want to share those with other people. And so when I share my stuff, I think my energy comes from this genuine belief, what I'm going to share with you can be of real value to you. Mm. That, that, that's interesting as well. And one thing I've, I wanted to ask and anybody that does sort of public speaking like you do, how it was changed during COVID when presumably you were delivering stuff online, as, as most people were, how that, because I get my energy from the room. I get my energy yes. from the audience. I, yeah. I love to be on a stage and just feed off people's reactions. And when I've been doing stuff on a, uh, a Zoom or a, or a Teams or whatever it may be to a virtual audience where you can't necessarily see the faces, I found that very difficult, mm. very difficult. How was that for you when you were doing that compared to what it's like in a room? It was an adjustment. There is no doubt about it. Um, I think there were times when people would have their cameras on. And although I couldn't hear their reaction, I could sometimes see their reaction. I would also try and get some engagement by, you know, put your comments, put your answer now in the chat box. And also I'd say, right, folks, it's been a bit of a weird experience. I couldn't, in some respects, couldn't see you, couldn't hear you at times. Um, so tell me what you thought of the session. And when I started to get some feedback in the chat box that found this invaluable, and again, people still say, loved your energy. But I think it does become, and I'm not saying everyone can do this, it, it, it is a challenge, 100% agree with you. Um, but I just decided just to go for it. And, you know, I'm not looking at you right now. I'm looking at my camera, and, not, and I know you're in my peripheral vision, but for you to feel like you've got, I'm looking at you, I have to not look at you, which is weird. I've got to look at the camera. And I just literally, it's almost like flick a switch and morning, everyone. Great to see you. Although I can't really see you. Greetings from Warrington, which if you don't know where Warrington is, it's a remote fishing village in the northwest of England. And I'm just there living by the banks of the river Ikea. And I would just do that. And it's just like, 
if this isn't working for you, tough. I'm just going to go for it. And you mentioned the phrase before performance, and it was a bit of a performance, but it was still me trying to share some ideas with people that I generally believed could help them. But there is nothing, you're right, when you are in that room and you're getting that that laughter and that energy. However, sometimes, Darren, there, there can be people in that room who, for whatever reason, aren't laughing or suddenly want to take a phone call or disturb you because they're going off to the toilet or just seem to sit there and it's not like they've been asked to consent to come. It's like they've been sentenced to come and hear you speak. Mm. And so actually sometimes in a room, although you can feed off the energy, you are also aware of potential negative vibes. Whereas when I'm doing my crazy stuff virtually, the upside of that is I don't actually pick up any of the negative vibes. (laughs) The downside is I'm not necessarily picking up any of the positive either. So not easy, but there's my answer. Hope it's of help in some way. No, it is. It's interesting because I've not really spoken to anybody that's had any sort of positive spin on the whole online sort of platform. Um, but the fact that you're not getting the negative vibes that you would get in the room online, it, it, it's positive. But then I, I guess you would be the person to come up with the positive. Maybe. Yeah, maybe <laughs> that is me. And also, I did, I mean, I did a lot of them. I mean, last year, I did 119 virtual events. Wow. Sometimes I'd be doing, um, you know, three in a day. I remember one day I started in Australia and I finished in America. And and also, you could argue, again, from an energy point of view, like I'll be leaving home at 6.30 tomorrow morning to get to my venue. I'll be home late Friday night from Hemel Hempstead because I've been doing everything there. Whereas with the online, I would literally have finished and then I'm off into the kitchen to cuddle my cat and get a cup of tea. <laughs> so I actually saved a bit of energy with the lack of travel, but I would still you know, much prefer the in-person experience. Mm. As, as you've mentioned your cat, your, cat, your cat's <laughs> made quite the appearance on your social media of late. Um, it does, it does from time to time. Me and Milo were very close. <laughs> How have you found using social media video to help promote your, your business? It's interesting, really, because at the moment, I've just literally, um, I've been on Instagram and Twitter for a few years, Twitter the longest. Um, Instagram played at it a little bit, and TikTok, I had zero videos on it six weeks ago. And in some respects, I was pushed, stroked, encouraged by my kids. My, my son's 29, and my daughter's nearly come up for 27, and they said, Dad, you've got some great stuff out there. You should do more video because I've written 13 books and I feel my days of writing books potentially is now over. Um, but I've still got a heart to put some stuff out there and be creative and expressive and come up with ideas. And so they encouraged me down the social media route. Now, it's early days, but I mean, I've found, um, you know, I'm not seeing, you know, I don't like to give any bull. So TikTok, I've got, you know, in six weeks, about 700 um, followers. And one of my videos has had 11,500 views. It's okay. It's not amazing. Um, but I'm, I'm tweaking how I do some of the videos. So they'll be relaunched soon. I've got some, um, I've been, I did some extra filming and went for a different approach to some of the videos and in the hope that it gets greater engagement. My Instagram videos have gone down a storm recently and, mm. and I'm getting some new followers. But in some ways, I'm finding, Darren, 
if my focus is purely judging success by the numbers of followers, one level, it can get a little bit disheartening. Mm. Plus, if you go, well, I've been doing it for six weeks and there's not been much change, you know, in the number of followers I've got, I'm giving up. I don't think that's a very helpful strategy. So my attitude is I've got some stuff and, and I think it's been filmed well. I think it represents my brand well. Let's put it out there. Hopefully it helps people. Some of them might share it with others. I might acquire some more followers. Great. And, and I'm in it for the long term. So I'm not going to decide, right, well, I've just not got the tens of thousands of followers I wanted or expected. Therefore, I'm quitting. I'm just going to keep putting stuff out there. So I think it could be very helpful for people's businesses. For mine, it's more a reminder that I'm around rather than a, a desperate search to find work because fortunately after 30 odd years in business, I'm not desperately searching for work. Hmm. But I think it's, you know, it represents the brand well and who knows who's going to stumble across it, uh, some of those videos and what they might lead to. No, that's a good approach to have because there's too many people go out onto social media and, and try putting videos on and they don't get instant success with it. They don't get a million views with their first video and they think, ah, oh, this is rubbish, it's a waste of time and they give up on it. But you're yeah. doing it to help people. It's there. If people want to find it and, and benefit from it, then fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Sumo. What was your reason behind that whole philosophy of, of shut up and move on? I'd, so I went self-employed in 1991. I signed off in Validity Benefit. I had no job to go to. And in my first year of business, working as like a freelance trainer, I turned over £2,300. Uh, not the best or most auspicious starts to my, my career, um, a business career. And, you know, I paid no tax. If you want to say, how do you avoid paying tax and national insurance? Don't earn much money. Um, and, and it was so poor that my accountant basically washed his hands of me. And technically, I suppose he sacked me. So it wasn't great. So my my business development was very much um, evolution rather than revolution. But I started to acquire a number of different ideas and insights over the years. And then I heard this phrase SUMO, which is an acronym that started off simply meaning shut up, move on. Weaved it into some of my talks and it resonated. And then over time, again, over time, not overnight, I was thinking about what people started to talk to me about what's your brand. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just turn up and do my stuff. And people said, one of the things about you is you are inspirational. You're also funny. You're a storyteller. And I thought, OK. And they, they said those are part of who you are with your brand. And then over time, I thought, you know, sumo, I started to use the phrase as to describe a set of ideas I had, a set of tools or principles. And they came to be known as the sumo principles. And in 05, having had 13 publishers reject my book proposal, one took a risk. W.H. Smith's, rather surprisingly, because made it business book of the month. I say surprisingly because, one, I didn't know there was an option for it to become business book <laughs> of the month. And secondly, it's not a business book. It's a personal development book. But that did give the book a real catalyst. Ten years later, it came out in its 10th anniversary edition, and it became a Sunday Times bestseller. So that was the kind of the start of it all. It was, it was, it was, I try things. I go by my intuition at times. I'm instinctive about things. 
rather than sitting down with a business plan and brainstorming, what shall our brand be? What are our values? What shall our logo be? It just suddenly, I got feedback. If you're very spiritual, you might say I got feedback from the universe. I might say I got feedback from a marketplace that this phrase had an impact on people. Shut up, move on. And then I explained the shut up is not meant to be that aggressive. It's about get off autopilot, stop, think and reflect. But it began to make who I was a bit more memorable and a bit more energy around it. Now, it has evolved to also stand for stop, understand, move on. But I, I'm not a celebrity, but I work in a world where organisations are running conferences and going, we'll have a celebrity. So I haven't got the safety net of celebrity to fall back on if my talk's okay but not brilliant but at least you saw me with my gold medal or a picture of me on top of Everest I have to work really hard at my content my craft engaging people and I probably need to be sticky and memorable and sumo and the sumo guy as I'm referred to makes me more sticky and memorable than we have this bloke called Paul McGee so that's a bit of the the journey of sumo in a nutshell Okay, I've just been through um, your seven sumo, uh, what do you call them, philosophies, guides. Uh, yeah. I've just watched all seven of those. And one that, that struck me as, well, I mean, they, they're all struck me to be honest. One that struck me as particularly significant was the seeking support from others isn't a sign of weakness. Yeah. Because I know yeah. of business owners who've refused to do that who've wanted to try to do it themselves. And as a result, they've ended up with their, their businesses failing. Um, what does that mean to you? It means several things. I mean, there's a phrase which, I mean, I, I didn't originate it, but if you find that you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find another room. And I've, I've actually had no problem admitting that I'm not the sharp, the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm really comfortable with what my weaknesses are and my failings. And I also know what my strengths are. So I don't actually have a problem going, look, people said, why, why are you getting these videos produced and filmed by someone else? You could save yourself a lot of money and get these videos on Instagram and TikTok. You just film them yourself. And I went, yeah, I know. But I want to work with someone who I think does a really good job. And I don't want the hassle of having to load them up myself. I, I just and I'd rather use my energy and time somewhere else. And I think I know I'm not. You know, you get people who are um, the James Milner of business. And if you've not heard of James Milner, but he's this former. Well, he's an amazing footballer who's still going strong in his 30s, plays for Liverpool. But he's never seen as like the maverick star man. He'll get you nine out of ten. He's your Mr. Consistent. And almost a bit of a jack of all trades. I'm not a jack of all trades. I'm, I'm just your winger or, uh, or your right back. And that's it. I can't do anything else. And in, in business, IT doesn't interest me. And therefore, I'm not very good at it. Um, figures don't interest me. I'm not good at it. So I just acknowledge there's lots of areas you're not really strong in and you're not passionate or interested about. So delegate them, bring in other people, bring in smart people to support you. You know, seeking support isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign you're really smart. So 
in business, I, I just recognize my my limitations and where I'm inadequate. And I don't have a problem asking help from other people. I know some people do. And I think that will be detrimental to them when they when they feel they can do it all themselves. Mm. It, it's really common. And I, I don't want to pick on businesses here, but it's really common in trades where they're good at the the job they do, whether it's electrical work or plumbing work or carpet fitting, they're really good at that. But the admin side of it, they're not so good at. They don't like it. They take a long time on the computer. As a result, they're not doing the invoicing they should be doing. They're not doing the follow-ups they should be doing. They losing they lose inquiries that come through because they don't have the organisational skills. We we have to chase up tradesmen for their bill. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and to be fair, we, we one guy we use quite regularly, and he's he's become a, a friend. But you kind of like go. Oh, there would be some people out there who go. Well, if I've not had the bill, I'm not chasing them up. You know, and you, you're losing money and it impacts your cash flow. Yeah. So I, just recognise you can't. You can do some things really well, but you can't do everything well all the time. Hmm. You you mentioned on one of the videos I saw. I think it was the same one I talked about that Sir Clive Woodward contacted you wanting wanting help so even he who coached England to winning a World Cup recognised yeah. that he wanted help with something what what became, yeah. what became of that well it was interesting because I, I took a risk he didn't contact me out of the blue I, I was listening to or reading one of his books and I just I'd written sumo and I thought I'm going to send this to to Clive Woodward and I just thought you know just, get, just send the book to him uh, maybe you'll find this of interest. Well, he didn't only find it of interest, but then he emailed me and said, um, I loved your book. I got a lot from it. Would it be possible to meet you? I think you could help me. And what had happened then is he'd moved out away from rugby and he was involved with Southampton Football Club. And he just said, I want some different voices in my life. And and if I just have the same voices before, it would they will all start by saying, well, what we do in rugby, Clive, is dot, dot, dot. And he said, I picked up from your book, you had a really interesting football and I need a new voice. So he got me involved at Southampton Football Club. I met the management, I met the team, uh, the, the, the backroom team. And I did a couple of sessions for them. And then there was this big um, change at the club and their chairman was ousted and the new chairman came in. Didn't think much of Clive Woodward because you've got a rugby background. Wasn't innovative or as as uh, Matthew Syed, whose book, if no one's come across it, or not many of you come across it, it's called Rebel Ideas, about looking at the world differently. Some people thought, well, if you haven't got a background in football, what, what value can you add to this football club? I think Sir Clive Woodward could have added a lot of value to that club, but he didn't really get an opportunity. He ended up working for the British Olympic Association. We kept in contact. We spoke at a conference in Tenerife together, but we our relationship didn't develop perhaps in the way it would have done if it had stayed with the team. But... I learned a lot from him in terms of his humility and, and just the fact that he was open to new ideas and he didn't think, hey, I coached my my country to World Cup success. What on earth can anybody teach me? You know, I had this phrase, stay humble, stay humble and stay hungry. And and he was de- definitely doing both of those. That that that's an important phrase you mentioned there, that he was open to new ideas. And that's important for business owners, isn't it? That they have to be open to new ideas and open to change. Uh, what sort of businesses have you been able to help with change? Any business that exists on one level, I, I, what I tend to find is if people hire me, 
then their leadership in one form or another has already made a decision by bringing me in that they are open and receptive to my message. So I'm pushing at an open door, not necessarily with the staff, but with the leadership team. So I don't you know, push any doors that are currently you know, locked and try and unpick them and then go, this is what you need to hear. People approach me. Now, they only approach me if, one, they recognise their people matter. And if they recognise that some of the ideas I talk about will be of value and help their team. And so I literally I talk about a work with the three P's, the public sector, of which I do a lot in education and the NHS, um, the private sector. And I've worked with people like, you know, Adidas, uh, Tesco, Harrods, but also I've worked with some Premier League football teams, most notably and for a long time, Manchester City. Um, but I did some stuff with United a few years ago and obviously did some stuff with Southampton. And Brighton and Hove Albion contacted me during lockdown and said, will you do something online for our players and our staff around well-being and resilience? So public sector, private sector and some Premier League football teams, that kind of broadly covers most of the organisations I work with. That's interesting. I mean, I can understand how business leaders would want change within their business uh, to improve profitability, to improve staff morale, staff performance. How does it work with football teams? How receptive are football clubs to this? I think what with the football teams, I mean, it's not always just about profitability. Um, it's I mean, obviously, in the public sector, it's just about we're going through a lot of change. And if we don't adapt, we will die. So we need to give people some tools to help their own resilience, understand how change impacts them, what they can do to help themselves. With football teams, it wasn't, I mean, let's think about it. Every time a new player arrives at a club, there is change in their lives mm. and there is an adjustment to be made. But with Manchester City especially, it was more, I suppose you call it psychological and emotional support. And it wasn't just ultimately with the players, it was with a lot of the backroom staff as well. And it was, I am pretty good at, at getting on with people and building trust. And over time, I mean, I was working on a, a, a retainer basis with Manchester City Football Club for five years. Then they set up their own in-house psychology department and basically said to me, we kind of don't need you anymore. You know, we've now got the, and I'm like, that's fine. I carried on working for almost a further five years with Manchester City because various people and various departments in that football club said, I know we have our own in-house psychology department, but you're proven. We like you. We know you. We trust you. We still want to bring you in. And up until lockdown, I would still go in, not as ready as I had done previously. So for me, a lot is also about relationship building, Darren, and getting people to trust you and open up to you mm. and, and realising that when they offload to you, you you're not going to start blabbing off to other people about what they just said. Mm. So it was more generic, my support, and it was more tailored to the individual than when I work with companies where I'm mainly talking about self-leadership, change, resilience and well-being. And that sounds very progressive, that a football team uh, having a psychology department, because you think back to when I first started watching football in the 80s, that would have been completely unheard of. How does a, a football club differ to a business in terms of how you can help them and, and how they react to it? 
I think it's an interesting question. I think what we've got to always appreciate is that the football club isn't just made up of the 11 players you see on a pitch or the 15 or 16 as it is now by the end of the game. You, there could be several hundred people involved in the club, depending on the size of the, of the team. And they're all people who've got mortgages, who've got relationships, who may have problems in their marriages, and may have issues with their children, they may have health issues. And so you think, well, people are people wherever they are. And a problem can occur in the Premier for a Premier League footballer that could occur occur for someone who's working, you know, as a nurse in the NHS. Mm-hmm. I think what sometimes is a little bit different is particularly with the elite players. Um, they can be very mistrusting to begin with because if they don't know you, that's why I would go in once a week at least to Man City to begin with and have lunch with the players and watch them train so they became familiar with me because there's a lot of hanger-oners. Whereas if you're working with other organisations, they don't, you know, a nurse isn't going, you only want to support me because you know how wealthy I am. Clearly that's not the case. So... But, you know, I remember one one player and, and he's, um, you know, his mother had breast cancer. Well, it doesn't matter that you watch football team you play for. You, you are going through a real emotional issue there that affects your family. So I also found after I got over that initial, oh, my days, look at who I'm having lunch with and who I'm talking to. They still go to the toilet. You know, they still have their issues. One or two of them still have their confidence issues as well. And um, so the the differences might not be as uh, extreme as you actually think they would be on the surface. Mm, wow, I could talk about football like that all day, but we, we won't we won't dwell on that. Who's your team, Darren? Uh, Liverpool. You mentioned the old man Milner. I, Indeed, I, I watched him on Saturday uh, come on as as Liverpool thumped Bournemouth nine nil, which has just cost Scott Parker his job as of this morning. You're joking. Has he been sacked? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, popped up on my watch just before we came on here. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they've let wow. him go. Bit of a knee-jerk reaction, in my humble opinion. But anyway, we'll move on. Yeah, we're only four games in. It's very early on for that kind of reaction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. it's not like they haven't won a game. They have, so, you know, they're doing all right. Um, other than, obviously, football clubs and business, what kind of company do you look to work for, do you want to work for, or what kind of sector do you really want to get into? I... There's, there's two ways to answer that question. It's always very nice when an organisation says, we've got a staff conference in Tenerife, Paul, you know, in February. Can we fly you out there <laughs> and, uh, you know, pay you to speak and maybe spend two or three out, three days out there? Let's be honest. Let's be blunt because I'm not into giving you bull. That appeals to me a great deal. An opportunity on two different levels. One, it's the novelty factor. It's the change of environment. But also what it does mean is if you're there two or three days for the conference, not only do you speak, but you might run a workshop, but you also get to chat to the delegates a little bit more and socialise with them more and talk things through. So I really do like that, if I'm perfectly honest. It's a bit more the glamorous side of my job. I do, I mean, tomorrow I'll, I'll be working in a school in Burnley. Then I'm working in Manchester on Thursday and then I'm down in Hertfordshire on Friday. All school stuff returning um, after after the summer break. Now, I like working with schools and I like working with the NHS for one particular reason above all, is that what they do really is making a difference in people's lives. 
And I always say to teachers, resilience in the classroom starts in the staff room. So they need to be in a good place in order to make a difference. Um, and so I do like working with people who, one, are receptive to what I've got to say, but also their roles matter. If you are, no offence, I'll work with you if you're a very wealthy merchant banker. And I suppose you could be, you know, helping protect the investment of your um, your clients. I get that. But um, it probably doesn't appeal to me as much. But any organisation where their staff are open minded is always going to be an organisation I enjoy working with. But if you're also making a genuine difference to society and people's lives, that very much dovetails with my values. Mm. And you mentioned people who are receptive there. That's a couple of times that's popped up now, receptive to change. How do you deal with it when you're trying to help somebody, perhaps a, a business owner's brought you in to help with their team and there's someone who isn't receptive to change? At the end of the day, I do not guarantee you listen to me, you read one of my books or you get some coaching from me and you'll automatically you know, change and, and be in a very different place. It, Ultimately, I can share my stuff, but if you decide not to apply it or use it, it's your call. But what I suppose I do is I talk about my own change journey. I talk about losing my job through ill health. I mean, talk about a not just a change in my job, but a change in my identity from high-flying graduate management trainee with all the kudos that goes with it to what was then called being on invalidity benefit. You know, I was labelled an invalid in my mid-twenties. And... Um, and so I, I'm, I'm honest, I share my story. And, and I think also I don't want to preach to people. I just want to look, this is what happens. This is how I sometimes reacted. But here's what I find will help. And so I'm not there with an attitude of thou shalt listen to me. And the fact that you are resistant to change makes you a highly negative person. You need to sort yourself out. I'm going, there's all kinds of reasons why we're negative about change. We're not in control of it. It wasn't our choice. We might not agree with it. Well, that's a recipe for not particularly embracing it. So I really want to, I suppose, above all, I try and empathise with my audience. And that means even those that don't seem particularly receptive. I try and think, what would be, would it be, what would it be about this person that means they're not receptive? And sometimes you think, it's fair enough. It's like, um, I, I have a faith um, and it's evolved and it's developed. But why would someone say to me, I'm an atheist? I'm like, do you know what? I 100% get why people are atheists. I 100% get why people be critical of the church. So I empathise with people. I don't try and disagree with them and, and, and start from a position of I'm right and you're wrong. I, I try and get alongside people in whatever context it is. Okay. And on one of your, your videos, you mentioned how you'd left school at 1982, I think it was. That's right. Uh, I was still in school then, obviously. Uh, I, I left only slightly after that. Um, but you thought when you left school that you'd ended your education, that was it, but you didn't realise that, that your education was only just beginning. Mm. When you did leave school in 82, what, what was it that you wanted to do? What was it that you dreamed of actually being? I dreamed of actually being an actor. Um, I really passionately wanted to go to drama school. That was what I really wanted to do. But um, I had a very psychologically abusive stepfather who convinced my mother that would not be a good idea. 
And I had a mum who wanted the best for a son, but also thought, what would be good? Let's, well, working in a bank would be good, wouldn't it? And it would make her feel very proud that she could tell people my son works in a bank. So I ended up working in a bank. I never went to drama school. I worked in a bank and within 24 hours, I was realising this is just a terrible mistake. And uh, it was only when I got my A-level results, I already started in the bank, and they were good enough to get me into university, that my mum became a bit more receptive to, okay, maybe leave the bank and go to university. But my real dream was to do drama. And is that something you've ever managed to rekindle? Well, I guess there's two things. I wanted to either become an actor or a journalist. Those were two real interests. And let's go back to what we said earlier on in this interview. Um, I am a performer. I mean, tomorrow there'll be, I don't know, 200 people in the room. On Thursday, there'll be 500 people in the room. Uh, You know, what am I doing? It's almost like a one-man stage show. And so I sometimes even act out certain scenarios. I write books. So in some ways, perhaps the, the, the... the desire to act has actually been fulfilled to some extent through my work and the desire to write, be a journalist, has been fulfilled through me writing books. So um, I'm comfortable with the fact that I never pursued a career in acting. I think the talent I had has still found an outlet through my work. And have you had any training in, in acting or in performing that's helped you? No, not really. Uh, That's a fairly short, blunt answer. I I, I went to, did a little bit of drama at school, but didn't really get any any real coaching about it. I have an interest. I'm sure if I was to, you know, quit my job and go to acting school, I'd have a ton of things to learn. But I think I'd also, it's a bit like when you teach someone perhaps a new manual skill, you know, I'm going to help, I'm going to train you to fit a kitchen then I think some people would be more naturally adept at learning how to fit a kitchen. And I think I would be more naturally adept at, at learning how to become an actor. Well, one, one thing I mentioned earlier, I've done stand-up comedy because I did that for a, a charity event. Um, when I was learning, it was a 15-minute routine that I wrote myself. I didn't write oh, anything really? down, didn't write a single thing down. It was all in my head because I knew if I tried to write it down and memorise it, I'd be tripping over the words. It would never work. I needed to know it naturally. When you're doing a a speech or a, a keynote, how are you actually learning and creating the material? I, I am fortunate in that a bulk of my material, it's like if you're a football, if you are James Milner, let's go back to James Milner become the star of this podcast. Good old James Milner. James has, um, you know, over these, his very long career, and he was someone who I knew when he was at Manchester City, you could call he could develop some muscle memory because there'll be certain things he does on that pitch that he does every single time he walks on the pitch. There'll be certain stories that I tell regularly. There'll be certain insights that I'm exploring and explaining that I've done a lot of times before. So... When it's new material that I've developed, I don't tend to go, I'm going to just do a completely different keynote speech, for instance, where I've never delivered any of these words ever before. I I don't, you know, I've got a friend of mine who does comedy and he'll rewrite a whole show from scratch. Mine will tend to 
you know, I have a, a newish keynote, but it might have 30 to 40 percent of some other ideas I've talked about regularly before. And then it kind of evolves over time. So I don't try and radically change too much too soon. And um, and, and it is a question of trying things out and reflecting on what seemed to go well. I mean, I was talking about comedy. I was in London a few weeks ago on a Monday night and the comedy store in London had an evening where you would have certain performers who I'd seen at the comedy store at a weekend. But on the Monday night, they were trying out their material. They were road testing their material. And I'll sometimes have an idea and I'll share it with my wife or share it with my son and a few other friends and go, does this resonate for you? And then I might weave it into a talk. And um, and then you get, you kind of go, well, that seems to go, okay, sumo. I didn't know whether sumo would go down well as a phrase, but my audience, so sometimes it's test, but notice what's the reaction and what's the response and whether you need to tweak it. It's like delivering a certain, you know, story and a certain line and how you craft it. It's being aware of how it's being received, as I'm sure you'll find with comedy is, you know, just change one or two words or the order in which those words are said can make a huge difference. That only can come through practice and experience. Mm. Oh, absolutely. When I did that that performance, I had um, six weeks worth of training beforehand with a stand-up comedian. And he was helping me with the... Because we, we all did that. It was like six of us doing the performance. He was helping us with different lines that we could try and different ways that we could do it to land land the jokes. Because uh, I came in pretty much with a finished script already because I'd been planning to do this for years. It was something I'd always wanted to do. Um, but when I did the performance on the night, even though it went perfectly, I've watched it back because I had it filmed. There's little bits in there I thought, that joke didn't quite land. If I'd done that instead, it would have been better. So I realised the importance of when comedians do this and they test their material in shows to see what works and what doesn't work. And when I've done uh, events where we've been training people in in marketing and in branding, we've done the same material effectively each month that people come along to and it's getting better and better and better because I know what works well and what can be changed. So do you watch yourself back when you do these performances? Well, well, just before I, I answer that question, I think, um, and that's in the big lesson for businesses, isn't it? You try, you experiment, you um, see what's working rather than you try something once, you don't seem to have success, give up on it. What can we learn from this? What would we do differently next time? And you tweak and change and adapt things accordingly. Um, do I watch myself back? Clearly, what I've been getting an opportunity to watch myself back on a lot recently is all these short videos I've done. Mm. So I will watch those. And um, as a result of, of certain ones, you think, well, that seems to work well for that market and it seems to be received well. I could have done that more succinctly or maybe for TikTok, I need, I need to sort of like think of maybe a slightly different approach. So I have done a lot of watching myself back in terms of these short videos. Do I, when I speak tomorrow in Burnley, am I getting that filmed? We're all up all the way through it? No. But next week, I'm working with one of my team and I'm delivering a session in the morning and then he's doing a session in the afternoon. Now, we will have a debrief. I will get feedback from him. Although he works, in a sense, for me and I've trained him, I respect him greatly and I know he will have a he might have an insight on the way I've done something where he might say, Do you know, that was brilliant. And have you thought about doing X and Y? 
And so I could still be learning from him. And in the afternoon when he speaks, I will want to give him feedback, but he'll be looking at some of the same material as I'm doing. He's covering it up for a different group. And I might actually go, I like the way I did that. He did it differently to me, but I prefer the way he did it. So am I watching myself back regularly on one level? No. Am I always open to learning and tweaking and changing? Yeah, I think to a large extent I am. Hmm. That's interesting as well, because one of the things I've been learning on the, the professional speakers course I'm doing is how to look at what other people are doing and see what bits about their presentation you think, oh, that could work or that suits my style, and to appreciate that and incorporate that into yours. But it's essential that you do watch yourself because you need to know what it is that you're doing that you're doing wrong or you could improve because if you're not watching yourself, it's not going to work. Sure. And I suppose over the years of speaking, I've I've seen plenty of footage of myself (laughs) over the years. Mm. So I think particularly if you're starting off, that's invaluable to do. Uh, and it can still be invaluable even when you've been doing it as long as me. But I've got to hold my hand up and go, my longer sessions, not so much. But I'm actually in many ways with a lot of these videos taking snippets of my longer sessions mm. and, and crafting them into short videos. So I'm still getting feedback on how I deliver things. Okay. As a, as a sort of final question I wanted to ask, because uh, we're, we're obviously running short of time now, was what's the the biggest success you've had with somebody that you've helped in terms of helping them through either change or or improvement? There would be, this sounds perhaps, you know, I definitely can't be accused of modesty, but because I've, I've sold well over an excess of a quarter of a million books, I've spoken to over half a million people. So the reality is, Darren, over time, there are going to be some of those people who read the book or heard me speak who contact me. And so it would be very difficult to highlight one person in particular um, because I have been inundated over the years. But by the sheer numbers of people you speak to and read your books, you, you know, you can get less than one percent of those people contact you. It can still be quite a lot of people contact you. And um I've had people who, one woman who was getting married as a result of hearing me speak and what had happened was she split up with a boyfriend and she heard me speak and I talked about don't leave your dreams in the bin and sometimes, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, don't just have this passive approach, whatever will be, will be. And I found out because she heard me speak again sometime later and she said, I had split with my boyfriend and I thought, well, if it's meant to be, I'll bump into him sometime in the future and our romance will be rekindled and we'll get married if it's meant to be. But if that doesn't happen, then fair enough. But when I heard you speak, I thought, I absolutely love this guy. I want to spend the rest of my life with him. I want to try and give it another chance. So she didn't wait for fate. She created that opportunity and she contacted him and they got back together And she heard me speak a few months later and she says, I have to tell you this amazing story. And a couple of months I'm getting married and it's down to you. So that stands out. But there's been lots of people who went for jobs that they didn't think they were going to get. But they've listened, read read one of my books and got some ideas. Um, I wrote a book aimed at children called Yes. The Sumo Secrets of Being a Positive, Confident Teenager, probably aimed at kids aged 10 to 12. And I've had parents contact me about it's the only nonfiction book their kids ever read. So there are a lot of um, you know, 
good news stories of handbooks. Certainly the marriage one stands out, but there will be many more. <laughs> what, a, what an inspiring story to end on there. That's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> I guess so. I don't tell it very often, but it, it definitely stood out for me. Fantastic. Um, if someone's listening to this and they want to get in touch with you, either to work with you or to have you present at one of their, their events or their, their, whatever they're putting on, what's the best way for someone to get in touch? Well, if you go to my website, thesumoguy.com, that's a good place to start. Um, and there's a link to my YouTube channel as well. And if you just want to maybe, I'm not, you're not interested perhaps in um, hiring me, but you're interested in hearing more about what I've got to say and how it might help you or your team, then uh, via Twitter, Instagram or TikTok, you can uh, follow me at the Sumo Guy. So either way, you put your, the sumo guy into your search engine and you will find me. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks for your time as well, Darren. I've enjoyed it as well. And uh, let's raise a glass to James Milner. <laughs> to James Milner. James Milner.